unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. A quick programming note for Grant Tamasha listeners. On this week's episode, I sat down with Aurora Akanksha, who has mounted an unlikely bid to become the next United Nations Secretary General. We recorded this conversation on Thursday, June 18th, and on Friday, June 19th, the UN General Assembly formally approved a second term for the incumbent Antonio Guterres, officially bringing the selection process to a close. In the episode that follows, I ask Aurora about her critique of both the current Secretary General and the United Nations as a whole. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Earlier this month, the United Nations Security Council recommended the re-election of Antonio Guterres as Secretary General, virtually assuring the Portuguese leader a second term at the helm of one of the world's most consequential international bodies. But not everyone is standing by to coronate Mr. Guterres. Aurora Akanksha, a Canadian citizen of Indian heritage, is running an insurgent campaign to unseat the incumbent Secretary General. Her campaign has attracted attention not only for its boldness, but also because Ms. Akanksha has spent the last several years toiling inside the United Nations and has been unafraid to call out its shortcomings from within. Aurora joins me today from New York. Aurora, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to talk about your candidacy, of course, but before we get into that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background. As I understand it, uh, you were born in the state of Haryana and your grandparents fled Pakistan for India during the partition. Tell us a bit about your upbringing and your roots back in India. Um, so all four of my grandparents fled Pakistan uh, to India after the partition. On my dad's side, my grandparents settled in Moga. And they, um, like at that time, you didn't really have any policies that the government would assist you with land acquisition or like any economic support. So they ended up becoming street vendors. They had uh, they sold tea and samosas on the street of Punjab to support their family. And their goal was to make sure that their kids are educated so they don't have to go through what they went through. On my mom's side, my granddad was the only working member supporting a family of seven. And he was a postman with the government. He would deliver post on his bicycle. And again, humble beginnings, the only goal was to make sure that kids are educated. So they were very successful. All of their kids are educated. On my mom's side, uh, my mom is a physician. She's the first one in in Gurgaon at that time in in where we were. My dad in Moga was again one of the first ones. And my I remember my daddy telling me these stories, like, you know, back then you had to go so many miles to even find a doctor. And every like home remedies were like quite often used, which had beneficial effects, but also detrimental. Like sometimes you do need to see a proper physician. So it was um it was a really good moment for them um that they were able to educate their kids. So my parents, uh they met in Rotec Medical College. They were doing their residency um, when, uh, and and I was, uh, so they married in 85. I was born in 86 in Rotec. So that's where the Haryana link is. And we moved to Delhi when I was three, when my parents finished their residency. Um, my dad, um, I think he started working at Lady Harding, if I'm not wrong. And now that I think about it, I don't remember if my mom was at Lady Harding or somewhere else. But that's where they started their medical practice. And then when I was six, um, we moved to Saudi Arabia. And Saudi, um, I mean, I have really fond memories of Saudi. I I know like today we think of Saudi as different yeah, in like uh, the whole women thing that like, you know, women don't have freedom and stuff. But at the age of six in 1992, I didn't 
feel any of that. And maybe it was probably the naivety of that age, the innocence. And um, yeah, and then until nine, I was homeschooled. And after that, my dad's like, you must learn proper education. And that's when I went back to India uh, to boarding school. So I finished my schooling in India before moving to Canada um, at the age of 18 when my parents migrated. Um, but I think just thinking of India, like it always brings a smile to my face. I, it's so interesting. It, I think of like Moga and I think of Maki Ki Roti Sarsoka Saag. <laughs> something I'm like dying to eat. I have not ever had it the proper one um, in, in anywhere in the US or Canada. I think there's just something about that Dhaba feel of like, you know, it's just swimming in ghee. It just is <laughs> it's a special moment. And then I, I'm, Gurgaon now has changed. So I actually don't remember my, my nanny's house to like, you know, from like 90s to now it's just changed. Gurgaon is like, it's almost become Delhi. Yeah. So, so those are my memories of India. And so, so let me, let me fast forward a bit. You know, I think what's so interesting about your candidacy, Aurora, is that, you know, you have insider United Nations experience, right? Um, you're actually somebody who's seen this kind of sausage getting made, as it were, on the inside. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing at the UN, I think, for the last four or five years. I think UN, uh, I'll start by how I even got there. So it was a chance encounter for me. I graduated in business, went to PricewaterhouseCoopers to be a manager, wrote audit standards for Canada, and internationally wrote Elections Canada guidance on campaign financing. And then one day I get a call that UN is like, you know, the context was that President Trump was hired, sorry, President Trump was elected. And uh, the current secretary general was hired and reforms was a big portfolio for the U.S. Like, you know, just contextually, U.N. is a more than $50 billion entity. U.S. gives $10 billion of that. And they wanted to make sure that money is used properly. And for Trump, that was a big thing. In that context, uh, reforms was a huge portfolio and financial reform specifically was big. So I got a call to say, you know, you have experience in financial reforms with public entities, um, private, that would you want to consider this? And I was like, yeah, uh, sure. So let's just talk about this. So I think the conversation started and then I ended up accepting. And I remember my parents being not so supportive initially. They're like, why are you leaving Canada? What's the point? Like, you know, if leaving Canada, you have a good job. And I was like, no, I think it'd be a nice opportunity to be able to contribute on this world platform. Uh, in any small way. And I think for my physician, for my parents, they're physicians. My brother is a physician too. So I think they always get to serve people. So they don't ever see the disconnect between job and serving. For them, it's one and the same thing. And for me, I always, I did feel that disconnect. That Am I really making a difference in the world or helping? So UN for me was that opportunity. Okay, maybe I can serve the world in my own small capacity. So I was hired December, 2016. And like anyone else, I've um, who didn't know much about the UN, I was awestruck. Like, you know, you're like, wow, this is a castle on the hill. Like, it's so privileged to be invited. And it didn't take too long for the shock and disillusion right, to, to seep in to realize what is this place. And I'll give you a few examples on how that happened. Um, my first week at the UN, um, so I joined one week before the entire, uh, the other reform team members joined January 2nd. And January 2nd was the current SG's, January 2nd, 2017, was the first day of the current Secretary General. So as protocol dictates, uh, the SG will give a speech to staff before he takes his office. And the speech was supposed to be at 9.15. And like everyone else, I was there at like 9. 
hoping to get a good spot to be able to see all the action. And at 9.15, the SG comes and, um, and stands on this makeshift podium of like two feet. And behind him come a series of men in suits and they just stand like a horseshoe in front of that podium completely cutting all the stuff and I was shocked and I was like what is this especially like you know coming from Canada where it's such a rule-based and equality driven society where you are treated equal no matter the level of uh, the level you are at in your organization or no matter any other factor like it's still equality a principle um, and here you, I mean, I was just so shocked that people will cut staff off. Like, you know, I mean, for any organization to deliver on results, you need to treat your staff properly. And I asked my colleague, I'm like, oh my God, who are they? She's like, oh yeah, these are the ASGs and USGs. And that I think was my first realization. This is the Assistant Secretary Generals and the Undersecretary, Undersecretary Generals. Undersecretary Generals of the UN, which is our leadership. So you have the SG, the USGs, right. the ASGs. Uh, and I was just, I think that was the most shocking moment for me in like my first week to realize that this is the leadership that, believes in serving themselves and not really the staff because in Canada whenever I've I've been to meetings usually leadership stands behind like you know taking care of people or mingles in between to show that equality but not just cuts and stands in front of their boss to show oh my god here we are ready to serve you um and I think so I don't remember anything the SG said from that speech I remember that feeling of being belittled I remember that feeling of being ignored I remember that feeling of just being bypassed and didn't matter um and that was my first week and then I in few months of being here, I got hit by a cab. And uh, like, you know, I mean, I still had my private sector mentality where if you're given a project and a deadline, no matter how unrealistic, you'll just work day and night to get it done. So I was leaving work at midnight um, in February. And it was, I used to live 20 blocks from the UN and I was walking and it was my walk sign. And on 42nd and 1st, I get hit by a cab. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I'm taken to the ER and I, and like, you know, I just turned 30 and, you know, at 30, you think the best of life is ahead of you and not behind you. And here I was in the ER with the broken leg, bleeding and bruising all over my body. No idea the extent of internal damage. And and like, you know, I was like, will I ever be able to walk again? Will I ever be able to have normal functions again? And, and like, you know, just those existential questions of like, if I had died, what would my obituary read? Like Aurora was a selfish person dedicated to the pursuit of happiness for herself alone, because truthfully, until that time, I had just been a taker, like from society, from family and everyone. Like, you know, my grandparents made all the sacrifices that led to my parents doing well and that my parents' sacrifices and hard work led to my brother and I having having a head start in life and women who've come before me, immigrants who've come before me and and what had I done other than just having taken from society and just that guilt gets to you that what has my contribution been? So I think in those moments I was talking to God, I was like, if you can please help me get out of this, I promise I will make changes in my life and, and, um, and like, you know, serve people in, in any way, but please help me. Like it was just so bad. And, and you really don't realize the importance of your leg that if, if, if it's broken, you'll never be able to run again. Even if you get surgery, like it'll just not be the same again. I think that. Um, and, and was that sort of a, a, a eureka moment for you when, uh, you know, you said kind of enough is enough, you know, I need to do something bigger. I mean, obviously there are a lot of things you could have done. What was the thing that then led your mind to say, you know what, why not throw my hat in the ring to be the next UN secretary general? I think there was a, it was a, it was definitely a stepladder thing. It wasn't a direct correlation at that time. So it was a Eureka moment for me in terms of what my life 
was going to be. Like, you know, I mean, having been a taker all my life and that guilt of like not being proud of anything, like, you know, all the professional trophies were just about me. Like what contribution had I really made? So I think that led me to then coming back to work and taking my job more seriously as a purpose and not a job. I was like, okay, my job is financial reforms. I am now going to take this very seriously. So for two years, I tried to reform the UN internally to try to bring about all the changes. And and my it's two years working and realizing the leadership is the problem of the UN, not even the decision-making bodies, because I I was exposed to them. And decision-making at the UN, I mean, is its whole section, but I I really think it's still functioning okay, given all the constraints we have on the decision-making. It's Employees are doing what they can. It's the leadership that is incompetent, self-serving, and, and really not doing its job. So after two years, when reforms concluded, um, and it was a reshuffle like the previous reforms, I, that's when I decided. That was my moment to say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I am just going to run to become the secretary general because having been here for years, understanding the system, I realized that the solutions are right here. We have the resources, financial resources. We have the talent. We just don't have leadership. And that's where I decided I was going to do. So it was January 2019. And I knew I was going to do it 2021. Um, so yeah. So let me just, uh, I might just pause for a second because um, some of our listeners may not understand the process. Um, there is obviously a very formal process. This is the UN after all for selecting a, a, a UN secretary general. This is a process that several years ago was ostensibly reformed to be more transparent, but um, you don't believe it is very transparent. You had this to say in a previous interview that the UN preaches democracy to the world but it can't even organize a competitive election in its own backyard. It is a hypocritical sham. And you go on to say that, look, even countries like the largest democracy in the world, uh, India, the oldest democracy, the United States, don't seem to be particularly alarmed by the state of affairs. So tell us a little bit about you know, what is the process and what is the official kind of status of your candidacy? In 2015, Resolution 69-321 was passed that says that secretary general should be selected in a fair, transparent, and open manner. So the resolution was the guiding factor for 2016 elections, where we had 13 candidates, um, and seven of them were women, yet we ended up selecting a man in that year. My When I was preparing for my candidacy, that was the foundation for me to prepare for my candidacy. And I... Um, and I think my entire time preparing for my candidacy, 19 and 20, I invested in learning about the UN and coming up with my vision statement, like what would, what are the problems that I would want to solve differently and how should we engage a new generation into the UN? Because UN, to my generation, is just, um, like we don't really care about the UN, to be honest. You, like uh, the average age of employee at the UN is much older. The leadership age is 62. That is like very distant from us. So we don't really care. So that's where I spent two years of my life figuring out the facts and figures for every dollar, 29 cents is used for the cause. When it comes to climate projects, that's 15 cents to a dollar. Just go back to what you said. For every dollar the UN spends, 29 cents goes towards actual operations on the ground? Correct. And the rest presumably is administration, bureaucracy, staff, and so on and so forth? Correct. Yes. And... Uh, when it comes to climate projects, for every dollar, it's 15 cents that actually go into nature-based solutions that would combat climate change. Everything else is a talkathon. 
on talking about climate change, writing reports. And when it comes to climate change, I don't know what's there to talk about. It's really time for action. Um, and I think just simple facts that a lot of people don't know, like how many entities do you think are within the UN system? Oh, my God. I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, I mean, I, 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 you know, I know that there are more than I think, because there are ones that I've never even heard of that I learn about every year. But I mean, dozens. Yeah, it's, um, it's close to 100. Yeah. So in the UN, we have something called the UN system chart, where if you count all the entities, it's 85. And I remember in my research, I came up with like seven more. And I went to the person who made that. And I was like, oh, my God, where are these? He's like, oh, I didn't even know we have international coffee organization. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing then? When I announced my candidacy, I honestly thought they would comply by the res resolution 69321. I never even imagined that they're they would bypass an election, which is what has happened right now. Um, as you know, on June 8th, the Security Council has um, has put the name of the current Secretary General forward. And in the press briefing, they were asked, like, you know, what about my candidacy? And they said, well, that's not an official candidacy. So it's so interesting how they keep changing rules as just to suit themselves. So when I announced my candidacy at that time, uh, the secretary general was not even endorsed by Portugal. Like, you know, he had just announced his intention and immediately Portugal like now puts his name forward. And then um, the process is okay. At least like, I think the biggest issue at that time was no one was sure how to handle this. Right. And the rule, the not for uh, the civil society at that time said the rule is, is open. You don't have to have a member state endorsement. Right. So there's a social norm that a member state, your country, typically the United States or the Denmark or Portugal would put your name forward and then you become official. But that's that's an unwritten rule, you're saying? That's where I think that's where, where I read all the debates of civil society. Like, you know, our um, our people is that, yeah, it's actually silent. It is the norm, but it's silent, which means that self-nomination should not be prohibited. And that's why I'm not the only candidate. There are nine right. other candidates. In the race. So I think um, this is where they've honestly made a mockery of the UN. The UN but if you go to the website uh, under the list of candidates, there is only one listed only who one is the incumbent. Who's the incumbent? Because now, so the process should be that self nomination should not be prohibited because the resolution doesn't specifically say you have to, unless you, unless you clarify it. And then why would you clarify it in the middle of an election? Correct. Like you should clarify it for the next election. You cannot just change rules in the middle. So I think that's where it gets very interesting how this is an institution that wants to ensure democracy is promoted everywhere else, but cannot practice it in a simple election. So could I just ask you, I mean, your native country is India, your adopted home is Canada. Um, how have they responded to your candidacy, either publicly or privately? What feedback have you gotten from these two places? So the first country I did reach out to was Canada. That's the country I'm a citizen of right now. And um, I met Canadian delegation in middle of uh, March. And um, I presented my case that um, the world deserves a new UN. The world deserves a UN that can actually meet the needs of people and not just politicians. All the crises that we're having, like we're going through existential crises of refugees, climate and a health crisis that requires UN to act like a leader and not a spectator. The facts and figures and the fact that a new generation is ready. Um, 
we had a meeting and um, of course, no conclusion was drawn in that meeting. And then in two weeks after the meeting, I didn't hear for th- from them. So that's when you, I knew that like, you know, um, most likely they are not going to go ahead. And I think that's where there are a few things in this election where I look back and like, you know, some things that definitely took me by surprise. And I think first was the member state's decision, the president of General Assembly do not acknowledge self-nominated candidates. And then was Canada, because here is Canada, a country that promotes itself to be like, you know, about equality, about uh, gender parity. And now you cannot even uh, consider showing your leadership towards a candidate that does represent all the Canadian values of like, you know, equality and diversity being our biggest strength. So that uh, was, of course, disappointing. And, uh, and then you have and like, you know, just the fact that then I'm asked by reporters this question, is Canada a racist country? Is Canada a country that has nepotism? Because our current prime minister and ambassador to the UN, both fought, like their fathers held the same role. Right. And then I have to tell them the decision of two or few men does not mean my country is racist. It uh, does not mean my country practices nepotism. It just is is a coincidence. And yes, they are not good leaders. They're not visionary leaders that I give them. Like they're not the best leaders for the country or the world. But that doesn't mean my country is racist as a whole. Um, and, and did you did you contact the Indian uh, representative or the Indian delegation as well? So in April, I contacted all the countries now that I knew Canada. So uh-huh. this is where it went to all 192 countries, including Portugal. I thought, mm-hmm. why should I leave them out? <laughs> why not, right? Um, and at that time, I only heard back from seven countries and India was not one of them. Then there was a second round of emails sent and India again was not one of them. So, um, so this is where it gets very interesting that the countries who responded to even take a meeting are not your Western countries. They're not those Europeans, uh, or even like, you know, those, those groups that promote themselves to be all about equality, women empowerment, youth inclusiveness, all these human rights buzzwords, uh, none of them. And transparency, presumably. And transparency. Oh, my God. None of them even responded. They were mostly from Africa, the countries that took meetings, or other smaller nations. And it's interesting how even if a few of them were ready to nominate, they were scared of retaliation from the bigger players. So could I ask you about this? Because I, I saw you quoted on this um, where you said that countries um, may have considered it, but were ultimately fearful of nominating you because of retaliation from either other members of the Security Council or big and important countries or groupings like the European Union. If a country, let's just say in sub-Saharan Africa, were to take the bold step of nominating you, what consequences do you think it might suffer? I think the first consequence any country will suffer is uh, is economic, um, where EU or a group like US or other will just withdraw their funding. Like this is so the they actually cut foreign assistance cut to that country assistant. because they have gone against their national interest or what have you. Against their yes, that is the first immediate reaction is they just cut the funding, and a lot of these countries do rely on foreign assistance. For development, and I think that was, um, and I think that was one of the discussions that I had. Is I mean, you must ask yourself, like after X years of independence, why is there still a reliance on foreign assistance? Like, how is it that the UN hasn't supported you enough? And you should ask for a change of leadership. Like in 1980, China's GDP was below all but three African countries, and look where China is today, and where Africa as a continent is. 
like Africa that's received the most amount of funding is st still has still hasn't um, recognized its economic power in the world as it's capable of. Like it has the resources, it has the working population that is able to deliver. Um, so, so, so let me ask you about uh, your agenda. But before I get to your agenda, you have a critique of the current leadership, right? You have uh, said publicly that the the current incumbent has failed as a leader insofar as reforming the institution is concerned, right? Now, of course, uh, governments around the world have endorsed him for another term. If you had that opportunity to address all 192, what have you, member states, what failures of leadership, what failures of reform would you point out? So I think uh, there are two UNs. There's a UN that makes decisions. There's a UN that implements decisions. Our charter of the UN calls the role of secretary general, specifically chief administrative officer, because our founders knew when the UN was being created, um, we needed a strong leader to implement all the decisions that we come up. And this was what was different between League of Nations and the UN. The two major differences in the League and UN were the creation of Security Council and the creation of an independent secretariat to implement all the decisions. So. One thing I would say is, what are the results of the UN over the last five years? I just want to see, have we made any dent towards um, sustainable development goals? The talk of the town is like, should the next level of revision be called Agenda 2045 or 2050? Like these are New Year's resolutions we keep coming up every 15 years to give something for marketing to the world. When it comes to climate Paris Agreement is one thing where we actually seen the projects, even in Latin America, like Amazon refor uh, reforestation initiatives or even rising sea for like small island nations. So I think I'd want to specifically address, we haven't seen the results in sustainable development goals. We haven't seen the results in climate change. When it comes to refugees, today we have the highest number of refugees, displaced and stateless people in the world. Um, these are people who are not voters in any countries. They don't have um, anyone else, social media to even tell their stories. So what options do they have if UN is not meeting their basic needs? They're smuggled, they're trafficked, they're lured to joining terrorist organization. And we can all agree over the last 25 years or so, terrorism is one thing that's on the rise. And it's not because terrorists are like um, recruiting from LinkedIn. They're literally prying on all the people whose basic needs UN is not able to meet. And that is becoming their strong base. And how do we address it? By investing in armament instead of investing in people. Um, UN, the current Secretary General specifically was the head of UNHCR before becoming the Secretary General of the this UN. This is the High Commissioner for Refugees. Correct. And um, over his, so he knows the plight of refugees better than anyone. He knows the struggles they go through and he knows we don't have enough funding for that. Like there's a funding shortfall of 4 billion, approximately 4 billion. Um, and over the last five years, as the secretary general of the UN, he hasn't prioritized any resources to them. Like, you know, uh, and UN's travel budget annually is $2.3 billion, which includes business and first class. So how do you justify over five years spending more than $10 billion on travel and yet not being able to prioritize resources to refugees. So Aurora, let me just, uh, just ask you, uh, you know, one critique you often hear, and I think it has been raised even in the context of your own candidacy and your critique of the UN is that ultimately the way the UN structure and the UN system is built is that it's so reliant on its member states. It's reliant on the Security Council for making decisions on major issues of peace and security. It's reliant on countries who are willing to uh, 
give greater foreign assistance for refugees, for human rights, for development, and so on and so forth. So to what extent is the critique really about the United Nations system versus the politics and dynamics of the major member states who help provide resources, funding, political power, and so on for the UN to do its job? I'm so glad you asked this question because this is a topic that I really feel this is a good platform to go into detail because this the view that you just presented is an outsider's view, is an academic view that is in public policy circles, that is in like all the public university, like um, public policy schools. When you are at the UN and if you sit in meetings with the decision makers of the UN, like I've sat through UN Secretariat meeting, UNDP, UNICEF, UN Women, UN FPA, like agency and UN meetings. And I can tell you, member states rely on the UN staff to give them the right decision, to guide them. So it's not true that member states make their own decision. They make it based on the information we give. And that's where there's a disparity that the leadership of the UN doesn't let the right information pass through. And I'll give you... um, At a geopolitical context, you're saying that uh, Security Council, one of the big critiques of Security Council is veto power, right? Like countries veto wherever their interests are being, um, is not being served. How many times do you think over the history of the UN has veto been exercised? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that it often has not been exercised because people will pull back resolutions if they know they're going to be defeated, but I don't know the number. Just 10%. Just 10% of the time veto has ever been exercised. 90% resolutions have passed. And that's where there have been no results. And I'll give you one simple example. Arab Spring. When Arab Spring happened in December 2010, that toppled the government in Tunisia, Egypt, and then Gaddafi started making his claims of like, you know, if people revolt, I'm going to come to each house and kill you, which made it sound like a genocide was there. So in three weeks of Gaddafi making those announcements, UN Security Council passed a resolution on like, you know, toppling the Gaddafi government and making sure that the rights of uh, Libyan people are protected. So Libya is one case, Milan, where there was, there was no stop back on decisions. India was on the Security Council at that time. And they passed. And where are we with Libya today after 10 years? It's a mess. It's worse than it was with Gaddafi. There is a perpetual civil war. Security of people isn't there. And now we have an interim government because the two governments cannot even agree. Because of that inability to implement in a resolution that was passed, Syria, Russia has always vetoed Syria because Syria happens to be in their backyard. And this is where the Indian ambassador, Mr. Puri, at that time wrote a book to say that the reason Syria kept being vetoed is because of our failure to properly implement resolution in Libya. Somalia. Somalia was again decades. Haiti. Haiti was one where it was a natural disaster. It wasn't even like a conflict. We weren't even able to manage that. We got cholera there. So let's not underestimate the fact that when it comes to the success of any organization, it's not decision making. It's the implementation. Let's give them breaks. It's sort of the, you're saying it's about intentions as opposed to as opposed to results. Action. Yes. So, and that's because it's not your life. Myanmar is one example. So you were telling me about decision making, right? Myanmar coup happened on Feb 1st. Um, where are we with that now? Like now you've you've seen the leadership of the current SG over the five months. Where are we? Are we even talking about it? That's the thing. The problem with the decision making and intent within the UN, what I've seen is that they only focus on issues that are media centric. Now it's Israel-Palestine. So that's going to become a full circle. Where is Myanmar? Where are we with Yemen? Do you think the conflict is gone? 
So these are issues where you need a leader who's an implementer. And when it, and I think this is where my candidacy has always been about that. I am not denying that there is a geopolitical aspect of decision making that requires um, negotiation, that requires proper information. But what about the implementation? That is 75% of the reason we're not implementing anything. And, you know, just a simple product thing. When you're buying a product from a company, will you listen to their advertising or customer reviews? Yeah, you know, I mean, of course you want to hear what people say, right? If you go on Amazon, you you look and see, have you given it four stars, five stars, one star, so on. Thank you. And the thing about that is that usually those reviews are given by people who purchase the service. So in the UN's case, Milan, the problem is those who are beneficiaries cannot tell you their stories. They cannot. So the only people who can tell you are think tanks and like those academics who are then consultants to the UN, that there is such a mixed narrative. And employees of the UN are the only one who know the truth. And to be honest, they are the policies towards employees speaking up is not favorable. So 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 let me ask you this, right? So so you've you've mounted your critique. Um, it's there on your website. Um and as a former employee uh, who's on a leave, I should say, to, to, to mount this campaign, you, you obviously have ideas about what's wrong. Let's turn for a second about what is to be done, right? So if you were to sort of say, you know, in the United States, we like to talk of, you know, 100-day priorities, uh, maybe 100 days isn't the right uh, duration of time. But, you know, think about the kind of bumper sticker, right? What are the kind of top two or three issues that if you were successful, would be at the top of your to-do list? I think the first would be managing COVID. And I think even in the management of COVID, one thing that's very important is that patent, like there should not have been a patent on the vaccine. And I think this is where um, it's such a lack of awareness about how patents work. Anyone who knows how patents work is every time you make a product, you can patent it. But every time you make a revision or change to it, you can patent it again. So the initial patent to the vaccine, the initial formulation should not have been patented. So that, so then the production should have been allowed by everywhere. Any further revision could have its own patent because new variants will be coming. We know that. This is a vaccine we potentially will be getting every five years. So just that leadership in, in managing COVID is needed, where we need to make sure that we have production everywhere and we can get people out of COVID Correct. by end of this year. So that's the first thing. Secondly, growing refugee crisis. Uh, it needs to be addressed because it is affecting the neighboring countries and it's affecting a really large group of people, one in hundred. And that needs to be addressed by making sure that we're meeting their basic needs and investing in efforts such as local integration. A lot of countries, Africa has 40% of uh, refugees and you'd be surprised Africa has land. It's not that they need to displace okay. these people. What they don't have is the economic resources to provide services to them. So that's where we need to economically incentivize them to locally integrate the people instead of sending them back to where they came from. Um, the third thing is climate. Climate is an existential threat that impacts all of us. And we need to stop talking about climate change and start investing in nature-based solutions through investment in climate entrepreneurs. Right. Like, you know, I, I wake up and if I have to go to work or anything, I get my dresses dry cleaned. Even if I try to be conscious about who, which dry cleaner I use, it usually has some element of plastic in there, either the hanger or the plastic cover. This requires literally investment back in businesses, back to people to make new products. And that is how employment will be generated and will address the climate crisis. And I think the fourth and last issue is representation. Half of the world is under 30. 
majority is under 35 definition of youth. This is a UN we will inherit, that we need to be allowed to be participating beyond donation and advocacy. The only way international organizations allow us to participate is donate or advocate. Both are not fair because how much can you advocate? And you don't have money to donate. We're still in the rising phase of our career. Like we're, we're trying to save money to even pay our rents and, and bills. Um, that it's important to engage this generation in leadership positions. So 25% of the leadership positions should be given to youth. And overnight, the culture and the system will change such that results would be achieved. So, so I want to ask you about a, a quote that a former UN official, Edward Mortimer, said uh, in, in, in connection to your candidacy, quote, I'm sure she, referring to you, has no chance and equally sure she knows that. But it's a brave way of demonstrating unhappiness, which I've no doubt is quite widely shared by her colleagues, end quote. How would you respond to that? I think that is a typical male chauvinistic behavior to think that they know what's going on in the other person's head to demean others. So this is a quote, which is, uh, I think, reflective of him as a man more than anything about my candidacy. No, I believe I have a chance. Uh, I didn't get it. That's a different story. But when I announced my candidacy, I believed I had it. And I believe that it's important for the world to know, to at least see what happened over the last few months. Like, you know, this is an institution that preaches democracy, but fails to practice it. After 76 years, you have female who wanted to apply. Other females as well are not the only one. And we still weren't given a chance. So I think, um, yeah, male, it's just a male chauvinistic behavior to, to demean women. Aurora, I want to end this conversation by asking you kind of what comes next for you. Um, you know, the writing is on the wall. It looks like the current incumbent will, in fact, get a second term. Um You've raised a lot of fundamental issues, and, and those issues have gotten some traction, to be fair. Uh, you have been personally profiled in places like The New Yorker and The New York Times. Um, your advocacy for refugees, for climate, for, for youth issues um, you know, has made a dent. Um, as you look out to your own future, uh, you know, what do you see um, are the steps ahead? What would you like to work on? What are the big issues you'd like to tackle? I, I really want to invest my time and life going forward on implementing the recommendations I proposed in my vision statement. So my vision statement was a culmination of effort by um, 200 experts, 300 volunteers who now are, are a lot more. And one of the few things that I want to start tackling is democratizing education. I really believe education is that foundation on which people can seek economic prosperity for themselves, their families, communities, and country at large. Uh, mental health is one issue that is not invested enough in, and each one of us suffers from it. Like, you know, we are not able to uh, be our best because of some mental setback that's holding us. So I do want to invest in mental uh, mental health. And I think one thing that structurally will not change in this whole universe of the UN or even um, aid world, if we don't change the financing of it, like, you know, we have so many layers of funding, uh, like, you know, by the time a dollar is given by a donor and it gets to the beneficiary, there's so many layers in between. So I do want to invest in reinventing the financing model of, uh, of the sector. And, um, and I'm just so grateful to all the people who volunteered and gave their support. So I'll continue build, working with them in implementing all the solutions that we identified. My guest on the show this week is Aurora Akanksha. She is a Canadian citizen of Indian heritage running a self-nominated campaign to unseat the incumbent Secretary General. Aurora joins me uh, on Zoom this week from New York. Aurora, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time. 
Grand Tamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest-growing podcast. This was a Hindustan podcast. Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week.